Final message of our preaching series, New Mercies. Again, the premise changes constant. It's always challenging, often upsetting. Right? We've said that every week. And what we've said every week also, in all circumstances, in all situations, God provides new mercies to those who lean into his kingdom and his teachings and his, his way. But explicit in our assumptions thus far is that change is good, right? Deal with it. Or, well, to be more graceful and loving, learn to deal with it, right? Changes. And this isn't really a, a correct assumption at all. Some change is good and some change really isn't good. Right? We, we, we know this, right? We see things coming down and we think, oh, this isn't good. This is, this is not good. And we don't even have to be God to, to recognize this many times. Um, how do we discern the good from the bad? And more often than not, it's not good from bad. It's simply essential from non-essentials. Right? We, we, we kind of try to make every issue a, a win-lose proposition. And, and really, a lot of them are choices between good and better, better and best. It's not bad or good necessarily, um, but like I wrote, essentials, and some things are just, they're not essential, right? They're fun to talk about, they're fun to explore, but the weight of the world isn't on our answer with some of these, these issues. Um, like Douglas, we like to believe we all have it all figured out, and we don't need any more instruction, no more advice, no more information, <laughs> even from God's Word. I know a lot of Christians, I don't need to go to church, I, I, what else am I going to learn? <laughs> Bad way, to, bad way to be right there. What else can I learn? Um, or any other spiritual authority, let alone God's word. But the issues that face the church today demand, like Douglas said, that we pull together as the body of Christ to discern the way, the truth, and, and really the life that we're to be living. Um, and for each of the following questions, I'm going to pose a bunch of questions. I'm just going to fly through them real quickly. I'm not going to pause on them. We're not going to answer them this morning. Um, but for each of the following questions and issues facing the church today and society... Um, I can guarantee you, because I've talked to a lot of you, on every single one of these questions, I just need you to understand this, that there is somebody sitting nearby you who disagrees with your interpretation. I, I guarantee it. And they will fight tooth and nail. They will even leave the church if we were to have some of these conversations right here. It's, it's crazy, but it's true. Let, let me just throw out some of these, these questions that, that can divide us, right, that, that can ruin our unity and thus ruin our witness, what are the physical realities of heaven and hell? I mean, there's a lot of discussion about that. Where is it? What's it going to be like? Are miracles simply the confluence of explainable natural events or processes? That, that's the big discussion. The emergent church, are they evil? Is there a seven-year tribulation? If there is, are we pre-mid or post-trib? If there's a literal thousand-year reign, are we, right, pre-post or amillennial? And what of all the other end-time scenarios and dispensations and prophecies one finds in the books of the Old Testament and Revelation, especially, you know, in the Old Testament, Daniel and Isaiah? Did the majority of it refer to the rise and fall of Jerusalem and the Roman Empire, and the majority of it's already happened, or is the majority of it still to happen? I mean, people read Revelation from two radically different perspectives, very futurist and very already gone bad, already gone by these events Right? So this is, this is something, I tell you what, you put Christians in a, in a room and, it, and it's going to explode. It's, it's going to explode. What's God's take on homosexuality and gender issues? More importantly, in light of Jesus Christ, what's God's take on homosexuality and gender? I, that, that's all I'll say there. Are masks and vaccines signs of a weak faith or are they the signs of the beast? I'm hearing a lot of uh, opinions out there. I'm, I'm just telling you, this is, these are real opinions, real opinions. Which political party is going to hell in a handbasket? Right? They're, they're debating that. <laughs> 
Is the earth billions of years old or is it only thousands of years old? Is drinking alcohol a sin? How big a problem or an issue is racism in America or Richland, California, excuse me, Washington for that matter? That was close. Should women be allowed to be preachers and pastors? In the center of it all, C.S. Lewis posed this, but he wasn't the first to pose this question. It's been posed many times over the years. Was Jesus Christ of Nazareth the unique son of God or was he a liar from hell? Or is he a man on the level of one who believes he's a poached egg? Right? I mean, that's the center of all of those other questions. This is the one that everybody kind of starts at. And then, and then it flows from there. Now, here's the crazy part. All these questions were asked then and now in different forms, in different ways, but they're generally the same. How did we start? How are we going to end? How do we relate to people who don't believe like we? I mean, these, these are our questions that as we come together as the body of Christ, we've got to wrestle with who gets to be in the body and who doesn't. Who are we going to exclude? Because they don't measure up. And then once we're the body and we go out and save the world, who do we bypass because we think, ah, they can't be saved? <laughs> Look at them. God can't even save them. Each one of these, again, has the potential to destroy our unity. And again, unity wasn't a goal of God's for unity's sake. The unity was for our witness, right? The unity that we have, the, the end product of our, winity, of our unity is our witness, right? If we're divided, our witness gets hijacked. Now, with the exception of this last question, there are reasons I don't preach on a lot of these topics. I'll just tell you why right now. One reason, lots of Bible-believing Christians on every side of every single one of the questions that I just posed. Number two, that person is probably sitting in this room right nearby you. And number three, like Douglas said, lots of Scripture can be read and interpreted whether consciously or unconsciously. I do it, you do it, we all do it because we don't have perfect knowledge. We all have certain experiences that we feed into everything we read, everything we do. Here's the $2 philosophical word. It's called epistemology. How do you know that you know what you know? And my wife loves these questions because she loves philosophy. I am lying to you. <laughs> wow, Holy Spirit, bam, don't you dare from the pulpit. Basically, which sources of information are reliable? That, that's, that's the epistemological question. I almost came a bad word. Um, in the past, main source of doctrinal, biblical, theological information was from your local church. Right? The local church, together as the body of Christ, sought answers to all these questions, questions of the day. And as a in the past, a denominational body was kind of that grounding entity that, um, that helped us make sense of all of our answers and made sure that they weren't all over the map, they didn't contradict each other, that they, they were coherent, right? But that day, that, that day has, has passed. It, it's gone. Um, uh, for, for, for Nazarenes, let me, let me back up a step. We, we have ours. We have our denominational answers to these questions. Um, it's called Wesley's quadrilateral, right? As Wesley looked at the world, he asked the epistemological question, how do I know that I know what I know? And he landed on four things, not just Scripture, but he landed on Scripture, tradition, which was the early church, and the Eastern church. It kind of blows people's minds a little bit. The Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Ukraine, those Eastern churches, he he pulled a lot from, from that. And the, and the early church fathers and, and reason and experience. Um, there are churches today that will look at this list of four things and they will immediately drop the first of the, the bottom three. Only scripture, scriptura to, uh, sola. I mean, nothing else, nothing else. 
Other churches go the opposite way. They look at Scripture and go, that's outdated, it's barbaric. Our religion today needs to be all about tradition, reason, and experience, not that old Bible that's filled with so much hatred. And so, so you got churches today that really they look at these four things, and though they were Nazarenes, we kind of lean into all four. Wesley did the same thing. Again, today, multiple sources not denominationally moderated or grounded, which means that people's opinions about these questions, they're all over the map. Their answers contradict their, they have no idea that their answers are contradicting the answer that they just gave a moment before. They, there's no coherence to a lot. Of, again, you, you guys are recognized this. You go out and talk to people and you think, well, wait a minute, you said this, but, but I know you believe this. That doesn't, that, they don't jive. You, you see that? Huh. How weird. And then they go on about their day. They have friends. We have friends from all religious backgrounds. And more importantly than that, these friends from these religious backgrounds, these different religious backgrounds, world religious backgrounds, like many Christians today, and I don't say this to be mean, that a lot of folks, they don't even understand the religion that they're holding on to and that they say Christianity is wrong. Again, we do the same thing. You talk to Christians, and, and, and what is their knowledge of just Bible basics? And they're all over the map. They're all over the map. So we have people receiving their information from all over the place. None of it's moderated whatsoever. And within all these questions, we're left with the big question. As the body of Christ, how do we navigate and discern these competing claims of truth? Just like Douglas said, how are we going to come together and pull this off? Apostle Paul's instructions and advice to a young Timothy are going to guide us this morning. I'm going to look at his second letter, and then I'm going to look at his first letter. And I'm not going to start with the first letter and go to the second letter. I'm going to start with the second letter and go to the first letter. Don't be confused. In both letters, we're going to be in chapter 4. So if you've got your fingers and, you, you know, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, there's only a few pages in between. And it, all right, just kind of set you all up there. 2 Timothy, we read this earlier, chapter 4, verse 1. It says this. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Now, before I go any further, I want to write out of the chute four things, just very quickly here. First thing, when it comes to the driving issues, questions of the day, we are all called to be prepared to preach. Preaching, this, this letter is written to somebody who would be a preacher, the leader of a church, but this letter is in our Bibles for a reason. It's not just in the manual. Oh, pastors, you're the only one that needs to read this letter. Every single one of us needs to read this letter because we are all pre we all bring good news. We're all evangelists, right? Don't get caught up in that idea that God only calls some people to be evangelists. He does. He calls them to vocationally give up everything, all their normal job, their plumbing job, their teaching job, whatever. But we are all called to be evangelists. We're all called to preach the gospel. We're all called to be prepared. So right out of the chute, let's just read this letter correctly here, right? It isn't just to pastors exclusively, which necessarily entails this preaching the word, this being prepared in all season. It necessarily entails Right? If you're preaching, you're going to be correcting, you're going to be rebuking, and you're going to be encouraging, and you're going to be hopefully giving careful instructions. That's part of preaching. And this process is fraught with danger. Just like Douglas said, every time he stands up and gets filmed on the video, he gets a little bit nervous, just like I do. Because I stand up here and I, boy, I better be telling the truth. I better have studied hard enough this week for, so that what I say, people can go home, open up their scripture, and it will agree I sweat this out. Every preacher does. Step into the pulpit with fear and trembling, just to let you know. I don't take it flippantly. 
And the thing that we want to focus on this morning, how do we correct, rebuke, encourage, and instruct? We do it with great patience. We do it with great patience, unwearied patience. Greek word used for this is, um, describes a spirit that's never irritated. Just kind of grade yourself very quickly. Just don't say anything out loud. <laughs> Are you never irritated? Never despairing? Never regarding anybody as beyond salvation? That's some patience, right? I, I think I have patience. That's longstanding that's, that's great, great patience. Now, that being said, the fourth thing I want to share with you, not all the issues of the day, I'm going to say this very carefully, not all the issues of the day are issues of the same intensity for the church. Right? There are some issues being debated today that the church can afford to take aside. Not all. And what I'm not saying is all the earthly, all the fleshly, all the material stuff y'all can worry about, and the church will just worry about spiritual stuff. That's just Gnosticism, and that's just silly. Okay, We believe that, that, that God ministers through the Holy Spirit to our whole body, body, soul, mind, spirit, not just our soul. What I am saying is that some issues are essential to our faith and our practice, and some issues aren't essential. It's not that they're not important, but they're not essential. And I'll take it one step further. Some of our debates, some of our discussions are just downright silly. Right? They're not essential. They're not essential. They're just a thorough waste of time. And in fact, Paul continues his instruction in his advice. He says this, verse 3, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine and said to suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And again, warning, not a warning. Remember, this isn't just to pastors. This is to all of us. This is to all of us. So in chapter 4, now I'm going to switch. I'm going to switch. I'm going to go back to Paul's first letter that he wrote to Timothy. This has been the second letter. And I'm going to go back to the, the, the first letter, fourth chapter, same chapter, because in this chapter, in the first letter, Paul does an amazing thing. Not only does he kind of lay out some very well-thought-out strategies when we meet with people with some of these discussion questions and they want to really bite into it, he gives us some great advice. And then within the midst of this advice, he gives us two litmus tests. And they're amazing litmus tests. And what a, you remember a litmus test, right? It was in science and, and you stick that piece of paper into liquid and depending on how the gradient of the shades of green, you could, it told you how much acid, how much pH or whatever was in, in the liquid. Litmus test, it, it, it tells you information, right? So Timothy gives us two litmus tests that we can use to kind of dip into any situation, nearly any situation, two, it's crazy, two, dip into nearly any situation that we can pull it out and go, yeah, bad choice. <laughs> nope. Oh, good choice, right? So check this out. This is amazing. I'm going to start with 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. And in this passage, we're going to learn how to endure hardship, how best to do the work of the evangelist, and how best to discharge all the duties of our ministry. Verse 1, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. A couple things very quickly. The Spirit clearly says, nowhere do we know how. Uh, is, is Paul talking about a vision? 
his prayer life, the church in general, scripture. I, he, I think he's including anything and everything. The Spirit has clearly, through all means and methods at his disposal, says that in latter times, and again, we, we know this, we read this, we hear this, uh, some will abandon the faith. Now, here's the thing about latter times, and I'm going to use these phrases, they're all synonymous, in the last days and the great day of the Lord. All three of those phrases are pretty much synonymous, and what they describe is that time in between this age and the age to come. There will be the great day of the Lord. There will be the latter times. There will be signs. There will be all this kind of stuff in between this age and the age to come. So this is what Paul's talking about in latter times. Now, here, here's where we get a little bit confused, what a lot of us want to do. We want to attach latter times to just before Christ returns. And we set ourselves up, we start trying to read Revelation, we start trying to look for all these signs when Christ said, I, I don't even know. I don't even know. God didn't even tell me. The Father didn't even tell me. So latter times began with Jesus, right? It began with Jesus, the latter time. So again, if you're searching for, and if you're doing prophecy studies and Bible studies, trying to decipher the signs, I just want to, don't want to discourage you, but the end time started with Jesus and they will end at his second coming, right? So just kind of, kind of a thought there. Second thing, it's easy, incredibly easy to distance ourselves from demons in our modern world, right? But understand, whether we recognize them or not, whether we want to acknowledge them or not, Paul says something interesting. He says deceptions will come from the demons, but catch this, they're going to come through people. They're going to come through us, which, which necessarily involves a, a gatekeeper function, right? We, we have a choice, Whatever spirit or however way these crazy ideas are coming in, we are a gatekeeper. We have a choice to push them on or to stop them cold, right? We, we can make choices. He says such teachings come through hypocritical liars, right, whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. You understand what searing means, right? You sear your meat so that no liquid goes in, no more liquid goes out, right? Nothing affects the meat. You've seared it. And for a lot of different reasons, sometimes it's a horrific accident. Sometimes it's just a long life of poor choices. Our, our consciousness become seared, and we, it's like we, like we can't hear the Holy Spirit anymore. He can't get through our skin that we've developed by our lifestyle, lifestyle choices. And so Paul says that these hypocritical liars, and it's really it's a, it's a double whammy, right? He's like, he's like slapping you twice in the face. Um, a hypocrite is somebody who is deliberately... Uh, is deliberate pretense, and to lie is deliberate falsehood. So in effect, even though they've been seduced by deception, they in turn deceive. However misleading their pretense of learning and religion may be, in other words, these are folks that love to argue over things that aren't essential and that they don't even believe or practice themselves. They're just digging on the argument. They just like getting your goat. They just think, I, I, I don't know. You met people like this, like they're going nowhere with their argument. And I, I just sometimes wonder where, where, where are they going with their, with their hate. Um, um, and then Paul addresses a couple of the issues of the day, and he settles it with the first of our litmus test. Now, watch this. This is great. I love this. And again, strangely enough, this litmus test is applicable to a whole bunch of those questions that we posed earlier, and I'll leave that kind of up to you. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, it says this, 
They forbid people to marry and ordered them to abstain from certain foods. These hypocritical liars, more than likely in denying marriage and abstaining from certain foods, these hypocritical liars were probably participating in the benefits of marriage. They were eating foods, but they were telling everybody else how bad and how evil and how wrong these kind of things are um, for the simple reason that flesh was evil and only the spirit is good, right? Sex and hungry, those are unclean appetites, right? So abstain as much as possible from both. But this is the heart of Gnosticism, right? Flesh, material, evil, soul, spirit, good. That's not, that's not biblical. That's not biblical. Big fat chunk of the Bible, especially the New Testament, is actively fighting against this, and we got to keep it in our minds constantly because we can be so easily modern-day Gnosticists. Well, that's that planning. No, no, that's we just need to pray. Then God will do everything, right? We don't even need to leave our new knees. God will take care of everything, and that, that just, we, we know that's not true. So Paul applies his first great litmus test that guides us on so many of the issues both then and now. It's the doctrine of creation, Again, both issues, the marriage and the food, they stem from a false doctrine of creation. Both can be abused, degenerating into lust and greed and gluttony, but both marriage and food are good gifts from God that got affected in the fall, but inherently they're still good. They are not inherently evil. This whole creation is inherently good. We messed it up, but it is inherently good. All of creation is good. Keep telling yourself that. That's so important in this. Marriage was ordained by God. Animals post-garden anyway. Still bothers me a little bit. We're given to people as food, right? Paul goes so far as to make them both good twice over. Number one, God created them, called them good, and gave them to us. That's the first reason. And then when we recognize this and receive them as intended with gratitude, the second, that's the second thing that makes them good, even if they were bad at the beginning, right? When we receive them with gratitude and thanksgiving, God redeems everything, everything, they forbid people to marry in order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected. If, right, that's a very important caveat, the big, big if, if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Right, this litmus test directly challenges a whole bunch of the ideas dealing with end-time scenarios, prophecy, and heaven and hell. I mean, you look through those questions and you run this, all creation is good, and I'm going to leave that up to you entirely. Rethink some of these questions and just keep asking yourself, telling yourself, creation was good. Creation is good. And then in the next several verses, Paul provides a way forward when complex issues and confusion reigns, right? How to best keep your head in all situations, how best to endure hardship, how best to do the work of the evangelist, right, the bringer of good news. And to boot, he provides one more litmus test that we're going to look at, kind of helps us, guides us in, in, in pretty much the other half of the questions I posed earlier. So starting at verse 6, Paul, Paul first instructs Timothy as to how to discuss these matters. He says, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, and again, I'm not going to tell you the Greek word. I can't pronounce it. But what it does, it, it never means to issue orders, right? It always means to advise and to suggest, to suggest. It's a humble, it's a gentle, and it's a modest word. It means that we must act as if we're reminding people what they already knew. You ever done this, little kids? <laughs> to your husband? Okay. 
of what they already knew and suggesting to them, right? Not that they should learn from us, but they should discover from their own hearts what is right. That's how I learned to make the bed every morning. She didn't. <laughs> Another story entirely. Sorry. Spoonful of sugar, right? <laughs> I know somebody in this room who've never heard of that phrase. Spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Okay, just want to make them feel bad. Um, Paul now tells Timothy and us how to prepare and how to face these people. If you point these things out to brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. So Timothy is told that he must feed his life on the words of faith, right? He needs to be gentle in the way he describes things, but the things that he says as he's being gentle, loving, and graceful, those things that he says have to be fed from the Word of God. Right, that, that's, that's the beginning of it. Nobody can give out without taking in. So if you're going to teach, you better be a learner, right? If you're going to teach, you better be a learner. Why? Because every great thinker, every great theologian that ever lived will tell you, if you think you've figured it all out, if you think you've got God all boxed in, you are a fool. You're a fool. I hate to say that in church, but if you believe that, that you've got all the answers, you don't need any more instruction, there you go. So Paul tells Timothy what to avoid. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Notice a couple words I highlighted there. It's so easy to get lost in side issues and get entangled in non-issues or worse, really, really silly arguments that there's, there's no right answer, no wrong answer. And with this, Paul introduces us to a second guiding principle when confronted with complex, confusing issues. It's the priority of godliness, right? So we've got the doctrine of creation. All of creation is good. Run that through a lot of the questions that are confusing you today. And the second litmus test is the priority of godliness. Fifteen times he uses the phrase godliness or godly. Clearly for Paul, the question of godliness is put to all situations, whether they're simple, complex, Run of the mill, doesn't matter. All situations get run through the godly test, right? He dips everything into this test. In the New Testament, the word is used exclusively for reverence due to God, right? This godliness. And this high level of reverence is learned, practiced, and demonstrated by way of spiritual disciplines, right? Spiritual disciplines make us godly. Spiritual disciplines help us make godly choices, As Paul alludes to the next verse, verse 8, it says, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. He's pleading for a sense of proportion. A lot of people, right, the health, the eating, the sleep, the exercise, that becomes almost more important than their soul, right? We did a care series, and I, and I hope people didn't swing in the opposite direction. Ah, spiritual stuff, I need to take care of my body. And a lot of people do, they do. It's like their temple, but the Holy Spirit's not invited. It's a temple of them, right? They're on the throne, and they're beautiful, beautiful bodies. It's a big deal in our world today. Physical training is good. It's essential, but its, it's use is limited. And it only develops part of the person, and it produces results that only last a short time, not, not eternity. But training in godliness develops the whole person, body, mind, soul, and spirit. It affects not only right now and tomorrow, but it affects eternity. And remember from a couple of weeks back, this, this, the great disturbance, his, his plan to redeem the world. First, it starts with internal spiritual disciplines, prayer, Bible reading, meeting with the body, discussing, but it always ends when we gather together 
a whole bunch of radically different people and all agree on the essentials and don't argue about the non-essentials and the silly stuff, and then we go out to help a broken world. And if you apply the litmus test of godliness to all those relational questions that we posed earlier, how to deal with folks, right, with different lifestyles, strong possibility that your opinions are going to change. I'll just tell you that. That's why the culminating spiritual discipline is looking at broken people eyeball to eyeball. That's part of God's plan. It wasn't just to spend time here in church, but to get out there and look somebody who's hurting, who doesn't agree with us eyeball to eyeball and discover why. Looking at them eyeball, loving them, serving them, praying for them, sacrificing for them. That's when everything changes. It's incredibly tough. It's incredibly tough to judge somebody at that point. Seeing God knew this. Many of you, I think, knew it intuitively, right? It's one thing. I've been a coach, teacher, preacher. It's one thing to draw everything out on paper, a beautiful plan, step by step, all alone in your office. It's just a work of art. And then you take this plan and you stick it on people. <laughs> right? You all know that. You can sit in the study room and you can sit in the, in the playbook room for Years, But when you get out on the field, it's a whole nother situation. I mean, I realized this as a volleyball coach. I was asking them to do things, and they kept saying to me, Coach, we can't do that. That's impossible. So finally I tried to do it, and I realized they're right. I was asking them to do something impossible. I changed my coaching at that point. I mean, all the playbooks, I, I misread them. I don't know what my problem was. <laughs> but they figured it out rather quickly. There you go. Lots of pontificating flies right out the window when you see somebody eyeball to eyeball, right? What you thought was cut and dry, black and white, you look at somebody eyeball and you get to love them and you get to know them and you understand them and you realize a little bit of gray. It's black and white, but it's also gray at the same time. It's an incredible paradox. And that's the tension that we're called to live in. He calls it black and white, but we've got life. Mm. Some change is good, some change not so much, right? We know this. But God gives us new mercies as we navigate these complex questions. And those new mercies include folks who disagree with you. I need you to understand that. Some of his new mercies in the face of these questions that we're trying to answer in our society and in our church today, some of those new mercies are the people sitting next to you that radically disagree with your interpretation of Scripture yeah, they're, they're God's gift to you, right? They're making you ask. They're making you question, challenge what you think, what you believe, right? How do you know that you know what you know? I want to close with just this article I read. I can't remember where I read it from. It was an atheist, um, an economist. And he looked at our world today, and he concluded in, in light of this the Ukraine crisis, um, in the past six, seven decades, this is his claim, and again, he's an atheist. So I'm going to come back to that. In the six, past six, seven decades, we've had less, less people have died from war as compared to other causes than at any other time in the history of the world. I'm fairly certain I said that right. It might be nuanced just a little bit. And he said this, this wasn't because God broke in and, and zapped everybody. It wasn't because, you know, he listed a few other reasons. It was basically, according to him, and again, he's an atheist, Basically, according to him, it's because people for the past seven decades, world leaders have been making better choices. Better choices. And I find that very, very interesting. Even though he's not a believer, 
He understands what we understand. We make the choices. There are evil influences, but they come through us, and they're activated by us. They don't have to be. It's our choice. We have choices. And he said, now, the downfall of all this is really, really great. Everyone should celebrate, you know, world leaders are making better choices. But in light of what we've been hearing about this past week, he said, the downside of all that is we can turn around tomorrow and make bad choices. It's like, wow, spot on, <laughs> spot on. It's not like you become a Christian. All of a sudden, you, you can't make bad choices anymore. Yeah, you, you, you can. And you know this. You don't need me to tell you that. There's a perspective out there that says that we can't make good choices because God can't sanctify us. He just pretends. He imputes righteousness instead of imparting righteousness. And he looks at us and sees a huge mess, but then he looks at his son and says, well, for Jesus' sake, I'll go ahead and take this mess. But we don't buy that. See, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be sanctified. We can make better choices. We don't have to wait for God to come in and just blow everything to smithereens. We're his tool, not the nuclear, not the nuclear button. We're his answer. We make good choices. We change the world. We really do. Hey, this is the end of our series, uh, New Mercies.